Now we know that the key to having good relationships with other people is love. I mean, we know that intuitively. Scripture says that. I mean, patience is good to have. So is kindness and tenderness and truthfulness. But love contains all of that. You know, as we talked about last week, love is like the the multifunction cell phone. It has all these functions in it. And all we got to really remember is to love people. But here's the $64 question. How can I love people that are different than me? I mean, it's easy to sort of like people and love people if they cheer for the same teams as you and they have the same values that you have and they share the same convictions that you have. But, you know, if you disagree with somebody on something, it sort of makes you have different types of feelings toward them. And it sort of makes it where they're a little bit more hard to love. Well, the Bible tells us exactly how to love someone with whom you might disagree. And I want us to see what Scripture says. Take your Bible, if you have one, and turn to Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14, we'll look at verses 1 through 12 together. We're in a series called Romans Mercy to All. And today I'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible, and you're invited to follow along in your Bible. The verses will appear on the screen behind me. And when you found Romans chapter 14, verse 1, I'd ask you to stand with me, please, in honor of the reading of God's Word. Romans 14, 1 through 12, Scripture says, Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not, for the Lord he does not eat and gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Are you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd give us insight into your word and that we might uh, discover some things about ourselves, discover some things about you, and that our lives might be changed this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now, I'd need you to travel back in your imagination, back to the 50s. And I don't mean the 1950s or the 1850s, 
I mean the 50s, like the 0050s, okay? AD, specifically AD 57. Very few of us here were alive back then. But if you can, just take a little trip in your imagination. You live in Rome, one of the biggest cities in Europe at the time, and it's getting close to dinner time, and so you want to cook some hamburgers for your family. I know, I know. Historical anachronism. There weren't hamburgers back then. They were invented much later. And God has blessed us to have lived after the creation of the hamburger. But this is your imagination, so we're going to put a hamburger in there, okay? So you decide you're going to go down to the marketplace and, and purchase some meat. And, and on your way there, you're walking, and you pass by about three or four temples on your way there. And these aren't Jewish temples. There's only one of those. It's in Jerusalem, way, way, way far away. And, uh, and these aren't Christian churches. These aren't Christian church buildings. They haven't been invented yet. And I know you're thinking, well, maybe they have hamburgers. Okay, yes, you're very smart. But nevertheless, these are temples to pagan deities. Temples for pagan gods. You see, the, the city of Rome had 25 different temples dedicated to the worship of pagan gods. And those are the ones that we know about. And so you're walking through Rome and you pass by some of these. And as you walk past these temples, your curiosity sort of gets the best of them. You just can't help but sort of peek inside and see what's going on in there. And, uh, and if you were able to look inside, you'd see um, most likely, almost assuredly, you'd glimpse some idols, some statues, man-made statues that are supposed to represent spiritual deities that people are worshiping. So here are these people, they're bowing down, they're giving money, they're worshiping these statues that represent these spiritual deities. Now, why in the world would someone do that? Well, it's because they think that this spiritual deity or that spiritual deity can help them somehow. And so if you're a farmer, maybe you go to the God that's in control of the weather. Or if you're a traveler, Maybe you need to go and make an offering to the God in control of the oceans so that you can have safe travel. And you know as you walk through Rome that there's probably somewhere a, a temple dedicated to fertility and uh, there's no telling what kind of worship they're doing there. And so you decide to keep on walking past that temple for two reasons. Number one, you're a follower of Jesus Christ. And as a follower of Christ, you don't need to put your faith in all these gods. I mean, when you say that Jesus Christ is Lord, you don't just mean that He's Lord of the weather or Lord of the oceans. He's Lord over everything. And so there's no reason for you to go into a temple dedicated to some little peon god that's just in control of the growing grass or something like that. And so you worship the Lord Jesus Christ. The second reason that you decide to just keep on walking past that fertility temple is because your wife knows exactly how long it takes for you to get to the marketplace and back. And if you were to make a little detour into one of these uh, other types of temples, well, you might have some explaining to do. And Who knows, maybe she even put a tracking device on you that you don't know about. Again, it's our imagination. All right? So... There is something else that you notice at these temples as you're walking by. And some of the temples have these inside 
Some of these temples have them in the back. And it's animals. There's cows. There's chickens. There's sheep. There's pigs. And these animals are being slaughtered. They're being sacrificed to certain pagan deities. And part of the meat from these animals that are being slaughtered are being prepared and cooked. And there's a feast going on in some of these temples where the worshipers are, part of their worship is to engage in this feast from the animals that are being killed. And the rest of the meat is being sold in the marketplace, the very marketplace that you're going to, to get your hamburgers. So as you continue walking to the marketplace, you begin to think, should I eat meat that's been dedicated to some false idol, false god? Should I eat meat that has been prayed over and given to some demonic spirit? I mean, would that violate my faith? Would God be displeased with me if I eat this meat? Or on the other hand, isn't it just meat? I mean, as a Christian, I have freedom. Don't I have, don't I have the right, the freedom, to eat whatever? It all belongs to God, right? And then on your way there, you, you pass by a fellow Christian that you know from church. And uh, this very topic has come up in church gatherings. And this guy believes very strongly that if you eat meat that has been dedicated to a false god, you might as well have just gone right in that temple and worship that false god yourself. It's the same thing. And later on, you pass by another guy that you've seen at your church fellowships. And this guy is a Jewish Christian. And Jews were forbidden to eat meat that, were that was, had been dedicated and sacrificed to idols. And in fact, of course, it hadn't been prepared according to kosher laws or anything like that. And so seeing him reminds you that eight years before, in Jerusalem, there, there was a council that was held. The apostles that Jesus had chosen and the elders of the church of Jerusalem had a big meeting to decide what do we do with all of these non-Jews, with all of these Gentiles that want to follow our Jesus. What do we do with this? And, and they decided in the end that they would ask gentle, excuse me, Gentile converts, they would ask these non-Jewish people, the one to follow Jesus, to refrain from eating foods at church gatherings that might cause their Jewish brothers to stumble in their faith, including food that had been dedicated to idols. Now, since that time, the Apostle Paul has been traveling about, and the Apostle Paul put that prohibition into effect, and all the churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. But it never seemed that, a, that prohibition never seemed to make its way into Europe. And here you are, you live in Europe. You're in Rome, the capital city. So what do you do? Do you buy the meat and eat it? Or do you pick up some impossible burgers from, vet, from Burger King? Impossible Whoppers, you know, and try to stomach those. Such a minor thing, right? 
Just a minor thing, like eating meat. But can you see how it could really cause some serious divisions in the church? The people that abstain from eating meat, dedicated to, to idols, they have very high scruples. They're, they're very strict in their convictions about the issue. And they might sharply criticize any believer that they see buying meat in the marketplace. You shouldn't do that. That's been dedicated to demons. And on the other hand, you've got people that they've decided they can eat the meat and they might despise the people that are telling them what to do. You're always on my case about this and that. Just leave me alone. Let me eat what I want. If God didn't want me to eat hamburgers, he wouldn't have created cows. And so both sides have their own convictions about the issue. And before you know it, the church is divided, and if the solution is not found, we end up with VeggieTales Baptist Church and Pitmaster Baptist Church right across the street from each other. So what is the solution? Well, we've read the solution in these verses, Romans 14, 1 through 12. So let's see what God has to say about accepting one another, even when we disagree about issues. Verse 1. Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. What's that term mean, weak in faith? Well, it means that on some level, there is a failure to trust God without qualifications about something in your life. That's what it means to be weak in faith. A failure to trust God without qualification about something in your life. Do you remember the story of the man who brought his boy to Jesus? The boy was possessed by an evil spirit. The spirit would slam the boy to the ground and he would foam at the mouth and grind his teeth and he would stiffen up. And the man initially brought his son to Jesus' disciples, but they couldn't cast the demon out. They were no help. And so when the boy was finally brought to Jesus, the boy went through all the same types of convulsions and, and everything that the man had described before. And the man said to Jesus these words. He said, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus replied, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. And immediately, the Bible says, the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. And Jesus healed the boy. That man, he had enough faith to bring his son to Jesus for healing. But he knew in his heart he was still weak in faith. The man had on some level a failure to trust God without qualification for the healing of his boy. You know what? You and I might be weak in faith in different areas of life. I mean, the Christians in Rome, some of them were weak in faith about whether or not to eat meat dedicated to idols. Here's the question. Who do you think those people were who were weak in faith? The ones who had the real high scruples and they refused to eat the meat? Were they the ones weak in faith, or do you think it was the people that they sort of erred on the side of freedom, and they decided they could eat the meat 
without any problem? The answer is that the ones who were weak in faith were the ones with high scruples. The vegetarians, they were the ones who were weak in faith. Here's the, here's the principle. People with the more strict code of conduct who put rules and regulations in place in order to restrict certain behaviors, they're actually weak in faith. Now, does that surprise you? I'm not talking about sins that the Bible forbids. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about personal convictions. The people who put rigid rules and restrictions, they're actually weak in faith. Why is that? Why does Paul call them weak in faith? It's because following Christ is not about checking off a list of do's and don'ts. It's not about that at all. That's a common criticism of Christianity. Oh, you don't want me to have any fun. Oh, you just, you know, do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that. That's not, that's not the Christian faith at all. And if you've ever come to the point where you think that's what the Christian faith is, I'm sorry that's been represented to you that way. The faith that we are to have is an active faith. Not only the kind of faith that we have when we say to Jesus initially, come and save me, that takes faith, but it's a daily faith. The Christian life is about having a daily faith. In Jesus Christ. And if you're strong in your faith, you don't need rigid artificial standards dictating your behavior. Your faith dictates your behavior. And so Paul says that the strong believers who freely eat meat, they should accept those who don't. Accept the fact that others in the church might be weaker than yourself in this issue. And just because you're strong in your faith, don't pass judgment on someone who is weak in a certain area. Verse 2, Paul makes it clear. He says, so one person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. So there it is. If you are strong in your faith, you don't need to depend on rules that are beyond the scope of delineating between clear morality and immorality. You live by faith, and you are free to do all things that are not immoral. On the other hand, if you restrict your behavior by following rules that are beyond the scope of delineating between clear morality and immorality, you're actually weak in faith. You fall short of trusting God without qualification in that particular area of your life. Look at verse 3. The one who eats meat is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat meat. And the one who does not eat meat is not to judge the one who eats meat, for God has accepted him. Paul is saying that whatever your personal convictions are, don't despise or judge other Christians who might have different convictions on whatever matter it is. Again, we're not talking about things that are clearly moral. Or immoral. If something's clearly immoral, if the Bible forbids it, don't do it. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about gray areas. We're talking about areas in which Scripture is not explicit. And so if you start, here's how serious this is. 
if you start despising or judging other people in the church over secondary issues, then your bad attitude has become a primary issue. It's no longer about the secondary issue. It's about you acting as judge. It's about you despising other Christians. And that is the problem now. There might not have been sin in the camp before, but now there is. And it's the sin of the person who judges others. And so there's a reason that you need to accept your brother in Christ who has different convictions than you do. The reason is, in verse 3, God has accepted him. But I was always taught that was wrong. God has accepted him. Well, that's just not the way you do things around here. God has accepted him. I don't like it. God has accepted him. We've never done it that way before. God has accepted him. Verse 4. Paul says, Who are you? By the way, have you ever been told, Who are you? Or who do you think you are? You know, you know when someone says, Who are you? Like that. You've got a you've got a verbal beatdown coming, right? I mean, someone's about to put you in their place, in your, in your place. Well, here, the Bible itself says to you, "Who are you?" And I think the word "who" has about three syllables. Who are you? Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Paul starts talking about a master. He's throwing in a different analogy. It's an analogy that he's used before. It's slavery. Before Paul talked about us no longer being slaves of sin, now we're slaves of God. And as a Christian, you need to remember that you are a slave of God. You're much more than that. You're a friend of God. You're a child of God. But don't forget, you're still a slave of God. You're a slave of God. God is our master. So who are you to judge somebody else in the church? I got news for you. You are not my master, and I am not yours. We both have a master, and it's God. When we say that God is our master, that means God literally, owns us. Let me put it in modern vernacular because we don't have slaves in in our society like they did back then. Can you imagine you're out with your child and you tell your child to do something and then a complete stranger comes along and tells your child to do just the opposite? Who are you to tell my child what to do? Don't talk to my child like that. Don't tell my child to do something I said not to do. In fact, don't talk to my child at all. That's not your place, right? That'd be our attitude. Same thing here. It's not your place to tell someone else what personal convictions they should have. 
It's just not your place. That's what a lot of Christians do, though. They push their personal convictions about gray areas onto others. But you have no, you have no authority there. You have no standing there. Who do you think you are? Their master? They have a master, and it's not you. To his own master, he stands or falls, and he will stand for the Lord is able to make him stand. And so eating meat to dedicated to idols, that's not the only gray area, of course. It wasn't even the, gray area, the only gray area in Paul's day. He mentions another one in the very next verse, verse 5. One person regards one day above another. Another person regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. Got a question for you. Is Sunday a special day? Or is it just another day of the week? Is it a sin to go to work on Sunday? What about going shopping? What about going out to eat after church? I can make an argument either way. If you go out to eat after church, you're contributing to that waiter or waitress who can't go to church. You're creating a marketplace to where they have to work on Sunday. Shame on you, Christian, for going out to eat after church. I can argue the other way, too. If I go out to eat, maybe I share my faith with that waiter or waitress. Maybe there's some uh, evidence in Scripture about Jesus doing some what other people would call work on the Sabbath. So where do we stand on these issues? Maybe it's a matter of personal conviction. You remember the blue laws we used to have here in Texas? I mean... You know, stores would be closed on Sundays, and then there was certain types of stores, certain types of businesses. Car dealerships had restricted hours, or maybe they couldn't open at all. I can't remember. Alcohol or certain types of alcohol couldn't be purchased on Sundays. Some of y'all could probably help me with that. I don't know about alcohol. But, you know, I think they were called blue laws because people get the blues when they couldn't buy their booze on Sundays. You know, I, maybe I'm wrong about that too. But some Christians say, hey, Sunday's a holy day. Others say every day is a holy day. Every day. Got another question. This building that you're sitting in, this building that we're sitting in right now, is it special? Is this holy? Or is it just a building? I mean, what if we met for worship in the Fells of Paul? Would that become holy ground at that point? Is that building holy now? What are the rules for this building? Should men take off their hats before entering this building? Should food be allowed in? What about drinks? If drinks are allowed, what drinks? Just water? Only bottled water? Holy water. How about holy bottled water? You know, and what do we call this building anyway? Is this the... Is this the sanctuary? Is it the worship center? Is it the auditorium? Is it big church? My favorite term. I've been told that this building, by the way, is the worship center. Okay? And not to be confused with another church in town that's called the worship center. But, you know, there's so many rules to remember. Good night. I mean, I sure hope that I never call something the wrong name 
or I drink the wrong drink, or I wear the wrong thing, or I love Jesus on the wrong day, because someone somewhere might be offended and they might actually act like they're my master. Or we can all accept one another. I like that better. Let's just accept one another. Verse 6. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. And he who eats meat does so for the Lord. For he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not for the Lord he does not eat. He, give th he gives thanks to God. Listen, when a Christian is following his convictions in a gray area, he's doing it for the Lord. So even if we have different convictions, we can rejoice in someone else's expression of his faith. He's doing it for the Lord. Let's leave the judgment to God. Verse 7 and verse 8. Not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. For if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Again, we belong to the Lord. We are His in life. We are His in death. And the reason this is so true is because of a very powerful statement in verse 9. Look at verse 9. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that He might be Lord both of the dead end of the living. You see, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, the Bible indicates that he made a proclamation to the spiritual beings currently restricted as prisoners in the realm of the dead, and that proclamation is that he is Lord. And when Jesus rose from the grave and he ascended to heaven, that same proclamation was made to all of those who witnessed the fact that he is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord over the realm of the dead. He is Lord over the realm of the living. So whether we live for the Lord or whether we die for the Lord, we are the Lord's. He's the Lord over all. And so I want you to think about the impact of this. Because the one who conquered death and hell for all of us he is the master of the brother or sister that you judge. Better be careful. You need to be careful. Because your brother, you're judging that brother or sister for not having the same convictions as you. Verses 10 through 12. But you, why do you judge your brother? For, or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. Then each of us will give an account of himself to God. You should not judge because you are not the judge. Now, the judgment that Paul talks about in verses 10 through 12, this is the Bema seat 
of Christ. This is different than the great white throne judgment the scripture talks about. The great white throne judgment, that determines where people will spend eternity. And everyone will spend eternity in one of two places, either with Christ, and that's eternal life, or in the lake of fire, and that's eternal punishment, eternal damnation. That's the great white throne judgment. This is not what Paul's talking about here. Paul is talking to the church, and he's talking about the Bema seat of Christ. The word Bema is used here. Bema is a Greek word, and it stands for a raised platform that is a certain number of steps above everyone else, just like this platform here. Except Christ will be seated on a platform above all else, and he will judge all of his family. His family's judgment is reserved. It's only for believers, the baby seat of Christ's judgment. And again, it's not a judgment of eternal life or eternal condemnation. It's a judgment for this happens, for the earthy and the temporary and the worthless things of our lives are burnt away. They're removed from us so that only the heavenly and the eternal and the worthy things of our lives remain. So what Paul is saying here is that there are two types of believers who will stand at the Bama seed of Christ, who will have all of their unworthiness stripped away and burned off for only the gold and the silver and the precious stones and the eternal things, spiritually speaking, will remain. The first type of believer that will stand before Christ at the Bama seat is your brother in Christ who has different convictions than you. So again, you're not the judge. Your brother in Christ has a judge. Let him be the judge. And the second type of believer who will one day stand before Christ and have to give an account is you. And my guess is that already you probably have plenty of earthly and temporary and worthless things in your life that Christ will have to rid you of at the Bema seat. You don't need to add to the list trying to take God's place as judge. You really don't need that. Now all of us feel strongly about different things. But a part of what we feel strongly about, maybe the majority of what we feel strongly about, are simply personal convictions not biblical mandates. And here's what I'd ask you to do. I'd ask you to think about those things that really are inside the inner part of your heart that you feel very strongly about. And I'd ask you to ask this question. Do they truly have a biblical mandate? It's what I feel strongly about really in the Bible. And if so, where exactly? Because a lot of the things that we feel strongly about, they're nowhere in Scripture. Cleanliness is next to godliness. Well, maybe so, but that's just not in the Bible. Baptists shouldn't dance. Well, maybe not. But there's a lot of dancing in the Bible. There's a lot of things that 
we think are personal convictions that maybe somehow God left out of Scripture on accident, and so we're just going to ins insist that they're somewhere in there. And they're not. They're not. And so if there's something you feel really strongly about, but it's not in Scripture, then don't make it an issue that divides you from other believers. Okay? Just don't do that. You might even feel the need to go seek forgiveness of someone that you've unfairly judged. There's something else I want to say. And this is for anyone listening to this message who is not yet a follower of Jesus Christ. Again, following Christ is not about keeping rules. It's not about that. Sometimes churches have the tendency to sort of emphasize rules, but I really don't want that to restrict you or hinder you from following Jesus. This church, Broadview, we're going to do our very best to not allow Jesus to be hidden behind a whole bunch of man-made rules. We're going to do our best, but I guarantee something. We're not perfect. This church isn't perfect. No church is perfect. We have a perfect Savior. And I just don't want our imperfections, anyone else's imperfections, to get in the way of you seeing and believing in that perfect Savior. The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. You will be saved. Are you ready today? to meet the Lord Jesus Christ personally.